before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Endgame. Joining me, as always, uh, slightly on the mend from his Achilles surgery, is the great Bill Fleckenstein. Hi, mate. Hello, mate. How are you today? I am well. I'm, I'm delighted to see you hobbling around. I just got back from PT. I get to put a little weight on my foot for the first time in over three weeks. This is this is excellent news, and it's good <laughs> yeah. to see that uh, even after surgery, an 85-year-old man can get up and about and hobble around this house. That's that's encouraging for all of us. Now, th- I'm, this trying, week, I'm trying to see who you're talking about. <laughs> we we have a fantastic guest joining us um, in a second. Josh Wolf, the co-founder of uh, of Lux Capital. Josh is um, is one of the brightest people I've ever met in my life. Every time I listen to him talk, um, it, it's it's just a, an overwhelming assault on the senses. He, he gives you so much to think about. The first time I met him uh, was with Mike Green, and I, I will I will save that story for when Josh joins us because it's uh, it still makes me chuckle years after the fact. But um, there's a lot we want to talk to Josh about. You know, jo- Josh sits at the nexus of finance, technology. Um, warfare with some of his his board members and he is a genuine polymath and a genuinely nice guy so uh, what do you say bill we uh, we bring josh in okay let's do it josh wolf welcome to the end game mate thank you so much for taking the time to do this with us great to see you great to be with you guys you know, I, I have to I have to relay the story of the first time you and I met. Uh, I figured I'd save it for when you were here because I've I've told other people this. I don't think I've ever shared this with you. Back in the day, we were filming some stuff in Real Vision, and Mike Green and you were going to have a conversation. We'd rented like an apartment somewhere in New York, and I'd done a couple of interviews during that day and and had finished for the day, and and you and Mike were going to be the last one. And the two of you sat down, and I was sitting over in the corner of the kitchen on a on a like a tall stool, and. Off the two of you go, and it was just it was exhilarating and bewildering all at once. And I, I was leaning so far in, getting so involved in the conversation that I actually fell off my stool. If you listen, <laughs> if you listen to the audio, you can hear the kind of clunk as I grab the wall and almost fall off the stool. Oh, and I realised I'm just leaning and leaning and leaning, getting so engrossed in the conversation. Um, and it was absolutely fantastic. And, and I say every conversation of yours that I've I've had a chance to listen to since then, I've, I've embraced. So I'm just thrilled to have you here with Bill and I. So you got your seatbelt on today? Yeah. So you I'm don't fall out of your in. chair? Huh? I'm strapped in. I've, okay. I've got a table in front of me now, so I should be okay. So, so Josh, look, um, there's there's so much to get into here, and I think timing is everything. And I would love to. This is not really part of the end game, but I'm just curious because I know you've thought about this and written about this a lot. I, the day after Tesla's results were, were published. I'm I'm curious to get your thoughts on the results and perhaps more illustratively the 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 feedback and the and the response to it from from both sides. Well, we are in an entirely narrative-driven economy and have been for a very long time. And so headlines were uh, record revenues or profits and uh you know actually stock was down I don't know 3 4% I haven't looked today what 
latest, but, um, you know, it's, it's expectations and it's fundamentals and it's what degree, if you were a true analyst, you're looking at the fundamentals are actually from business operations versus, you know, either accounting games, um, which are maybe a little bit more nefarious or from, uh, profits from crypto, which were, you know, maybe less nefarious. Um, and then the signaling of, you know, why 10% of that allocation was sold, which was, you know, to prove liquidity versus, um, you know, to realize profit and make a quarter, uh, you know, Look, it, it's it's a game that an entire set of spectators or participants as negative spectators, i.e. short sellers, you know, have have gotten on to for, um, I don't know, seven plus years. And it's a game that, uh, you know, anybody that has been a negative skeptic spectator has mostly been losing um, as the price as a measure of belief and expectations has continued to ascend. And so um, all I feel is that there's confidence, and I don't know if it's five years or 10 years or 15 years hence, that this will be a tremendous study of human nature and markets and belief. I truly believe that Elon is exceptional at being able to capitalize on celebrity and reduce his cost of capital. And if you look at the measures of what a CEO ought to do, I mean, a truly good CEO, you know, it's come up with a vision, it's deliver the capital to execute on that vision. It's recruit incredible people and communicate the heck out of that strategy internally and externally and then hold people accountable, right? And, and hire and fire them. And so by most measures, like, is he an amazing CEO? I'm not saying he's an honest one, but, you know, having a big, bold vision, you know, attracting a certain cohort of people to provide capital. Um, it happens to coincide at a time where you have folks like Ark or Bailey Gifford, you know, that themselves are able to, uh, capitalize on people's desire to capitalize on a future that they want to believe in. And so it's a, it's a frustrating thing for those who want accountability and, you know, truthiness, as Colbert said, and, but we're in an era where it doesn't seem to matter. And so far there's been no punitive consequences for people who lie. So. I, I think this is an impossible question to answer, but nonetheless, do you have any sense of how long we can keep up just with a narrative, so to speak, as you so eloquently succinctly described the environment, or what up would upend that? Well, uh, you know, there again, fundamentals and expectations, and there's like objective reality and intersubjective reality. And uh, you know, I'm an atheist, uh, but I would look and probably sit with Dawkins and Hitchens and Harris and others, and be confounded that mankind has continued for you know uh, hundreds of thousands of years to believe in invisible people in the sky that you know, decree morality and so forth, but we would have been very wrong. I used to show people a chart, um, <clears throat> which had this exponential curve. I'd say, do you know what this is? And because other people know that I have the public propensity to be quite critical of Tesla, they would say, what is that Tesla stock price? I say, no, it's actually the number of Mormons in the United States. And um, I have friends that are Mormons. It's, uh, you know, um, interesting religion, but, you know, one that has, um, you know, for every two people that go out as missionaries, I think they convert about 16. So two are sort of begetting 32. Uh, and then if they have on average five or six children, you know, two beget 38 or something. And so when you look at the compounding conversion of belief, which is what many of these things are, <clears throat> whether it's in the stock market, whether it's in political realms, whether it's in religion, um, you know, narratives can exceed evidence for a very long time. Like the old anecdote goes, you know, a, a lie can get halfway around the world before the truth gets out of bed. And technology has certainly accelerated and amplified that. So I, I think, I, I, I think the, the frustrating, maybe cynical thing is that there are people that know that and people that, you know, rail against it and maybe they're on a righteous pursuit and, you know, they want to, and, and I feel like you guys and to an extent, you know, parts of what I do are that, but 
then there are other people that I've identified. Look, there's, you know, sucker born every minute and some are over at like PT Barnum and others are just promoters in the stock market and they're able to capitalize on their celebrity or fandom or people that flock or follow them. And it's, uh, you know, to, to me, it's the same thing as like a Sunday morning Joel Osteen preacher that, you know, is it, like to me embodies the daggers and men's smiles of Shakespeare. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so, so I, I think, unfortunately, frauds and narratives and manipulation of people in pretty much every realm is, is here to stay. And there's people who uh, rail against it. I mean, if you think about why do we rail against it, you know, um, I mean, it's, it's arguably no more virtuous. You know, it's status seeking, right? I get status if I call out BS. Um, yeah. So I've, I've come to accept almost, I don't want to say the futility of it, but it's here to stay. Yeah, I, it's funny you say that, Josh, because I, I, you know, I have this, I guess, this inbuilt belief, and I share your religious views, but I have this inbuilt belief that that human beings have this, ultimately, this sense of right and wrong. And I've spoken to many high-profile short sellers about Tesla, and it stopped being about the money a long, 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 long time ago. And many of them have lost money, written a line under it, but they still bang this drum because there's a sense that you know this isn't right. You shouldn't be able to get away with this stuff you know and and that's when i try and boil it down that's what it feels like to me it's just I, I i'm i'm not happy seeing someone get away with this stuff because it's just it's just not right you know and i think that that's an evolved you know innate sense of of um, when we see a cheater or you know something's not fair and and typically it's, it's the tribe that actually identifies and tracks it what's different here is that there's a tribal identity of being part of it and and some of the best tricksters are able to create that us versus them mentality that, you know, we're on a crusade. It's, it's us versus them. It's us against them. And that, you know, of course happens in populist movements in, in politics. Um, and, and some chieftains in the corporate world have been able to seize that. It, it happens in the crypto world. Um, you know, it happens in, um, in, uh, in, in high tech. And, uh, but yeah, for, for some, it is more about the moral crusade of, you know, this is wrong. And, seeing somebody that's like the um the monorail man from the simpsons lyle landley yes exactly right you do a, a citizenry uh who arguably are not like you know naive like they, they've heard the criticism right but the criticism is so deftly demonized that um you know they're just being lured like lemmings off the cliff and, and by the way so far right if you were a believer you have been nothing but rewarded I, I think that's the point. And what I keep coming back to when I think about that stuff is, and, and this will bring us nicely into technology, I think, is that when you look at how the world around us has changed, you know, man has spent our entire existence trying to make things easy for ourselves and, and to do less work and have more production from it. And technology has obviously enabled that. But in the in the markets, it seems that social media has really hastened this move to distilling everything down to the stock price. You know, that's where we've ended up. It's the only thing that matters is the stock price. Hence, the end zone dancing in Tesla because, hey, stock price, bro. <laughs> and the end dancing in the crypto space because Bitcoin, bro. You know, orange pill, stock go up, whatever the number go up, whatever it is. And it feels to me like we are at a point where it's becoming clearer that technology is not just enabling this kind of behavior, but fueling it. Am I misguided in that? Well, I, I think technology has always been an amplifier of things. You know, I mean, if you take every one of our senses, quite literally, you know, you're, you're wearing glasses, you have headphones, those are both technologies that are amplifying your innate senses. 
um, you know, the microphone is able to pick up and amplify. And so, so it, from, from the native local technologies that we use to amplify our senses to, you know, radio or television and broadcast, you know, it, it, you could argue that widespread democratization, you know, of technology is always a virtuous thing. We always, I think, misunderstand what happens when somebody invents a technology. You know, the question always is, what happens when everybody has one? Nobody ever forecasts, right. you know, the GameStop kind of thing or the shenanigans with Hertz, you know, in, in the early summer of last year, late, late spring of last year. Um, and so I think more than anything, it's an amplification, but it's an amplification of, you know, our most foolish natures and, and arguably our, our best natures. And you have this paradox where the most passionate voices, you know, I think it was Keats' poem, right? The, the sort of, um, what's the famous uh, quote that the, the, the widening Gaia. Yeah. Uh, but, Gaia. But what, what was the famous line, though, of the, the passion? Uh, anyway, it, the idea that the passionate are the ones that are the most vocal, right? And so, like, the rational, reserved, quiet ones that are looking with, you know, amusement or disdain or disagreement aren't as vocal. Um, and so and then you end up with, like, a bifurcation of, like, the pure promoters and the very angry, you know, mob and everybody else is in the middle, just, you know, confounded by the noise. So, uh, no, I, I think technology, you know, I've come to accept that for the most part is relatively neutral and it's how it gets used. And I think the mere existence of technology is just sort of one basis point on the tip towards moral good, because it's, it's something that is fodder for somebody to combine and use or to discover their genius. I was like a thought experiment, you know, imagine a world in which particular person existed, but the technology didn't, you know, so imagine a world in which Hendrix existed, but the electric guitar didn't, or Gates existed, but the PC didn't, or, um, you know, Beethoven or Mozart, but the harpsichord didn't, or Kubrick or Spielberg, but the 8mm camera didn't. And so, you know, every new technology that we invent is a combination of old technologies, and there's some genius that's out there that's waiting to exploit it or use it, you know, both to express themselves and, and to be celebrated by many, and uh, to manipulate people. You know, radio was used by fascists and Nazis to, you know, spread propaganda. So it was movies. Um, and, you know, and then it can do great good and move people. So it's, it's, I think a fight for, you know, it's a race, it's a race to use technology. Hopefully the good guys are using it better than the bad guys, but there are bad guys. A moment ago, we were talking about the frauds and the things like that and the, and the narratives that work. I mean, I think there's a complicated group of reasons for that. One being the fact that the SEC doesn't seem to really exist. And, and I'm kind of curious, as someone who's in the venture community and, and knows how that works, because I really don't have very good insight into that. Maybe not you, but maybe other venture guys, you know, has the fact that, quote unquote, narratives and, and work and, and profits don't really need to be there and revenue, the market cap doesn't have anything to do with almost anything anymore. Ha has that changed the way venture capitalists fund businesses? Do they like solve for the narrative equation as opposed to uh, p &L, you know, at some point? I mean, has it really, has it warped your, that part of the world as well? Uh, it has warped th that part of the world. I don't know that it's warped our process or like decision-making, but, you know, by and large, when the cost of capital is effectively zero or negative, you know, I always joke that on the one hand, it's like a tractor beam for the future pulling these, you know, 20 year far out projects into these 20 month frenzied, you know, ventures. And so mm -hmm. that is why you see things like Hyperloop and, you know, push to Mars. And, but at the same time, you know, it's accelerating all kinds of things. You know, it's, it's still confounding to me. It took 2,500 years for a 
uh, smallpox vaccine. It took 15 years from the onset of the AIDS ap- epidemic to have a treatment, and it took a year. You know, even though we might bemoan, oh my gosh, how horrible it is that vaccine distribution has been so, so, uh, so horribly done, the logistics and so forth. But you know, from identification to mere weeks of actually, you know, molecular definition and then vaccine creation, which we most of the world didn't even know about, right? And then going through trials quickly and the mass production distribution. I mean, that's just mind-blowingly positive. You know? So there's virtue in that. But the cost of capital, when it doesn't really exist, you know, say nothing of the fact that it's already manipulated by central banks, you know, in, for 40, 50 years from now, um, having come off of gold, you know, it, it's it's like hyperbolic discounting and infinite dis- I mean, people are just, you know, a dollar today versus a dollar, you know, far off in the future. Which is why, interestingly, the volatility that you're seeing in the speculative part of the public markets today, and you know, we've had uh, six companies that have gone public through SPACs, and um, and you see the volatility in this. And I've always told those management teams, you know, don't, don't focus on the stock price. You know, you got a huge amount of cash to live with your balance sheet. Focus on execution and growing the fundamentals, and make sure that your employees are not shipping the stock price every day because they're going to go insane. Um, and don't spend the money because it's not yours yet, right? So. Um, <clears throat> But that volatility is directly correlated with the tenure, which most people in venture capital are not looking at. And when yeah. expectations of growth or inflation are rising, and then people are, you know, either selling down and, and you're seeing the tenure go from one five to one eight, and the stocks are selling off, people are like, I don't know, you know, they come up with a narrative of why stocks just sell off. And then, you know, when things abate and Europe looks worse or something like that, and you know, Powell gives different comments and it's you know back down and there's a flood of buying that just seems counterintuitive and it goes from one eight to one five five you know, then suddenly stocks are rallying. I mean, so we don't pay any attention to that in the near term. When we're making a calculus to fund something, typically it's on the centrality of the technology. Is this something that nobody else in the world can do what these guys do? And that's why we at Lux tend to fund things that tend to have an end of one, two, or three companies. And there's deep intellectual property that's protecting it. Um, you know, it's a group of scientists that have been funded for 20 years and like they're the only people that understand it. It's something that feels like there's a moat around the technology that they're the only ones that unfairly can do this thing. So that's the starting premise. And then when we fund these things, we're not doing DCFs. I mean, I joke that, you know, I haven't really looked at a spreadsheet in like 15 years. You know, I mean, I truly, like we do virtually no modeling of our companies other than, you know, rough estimates and back and mm-hmm. sketches. And, you know, as Bill Miller, I think used to joke that if an analyst came to him at like Mason back then and now Miller Capital Management <clears throat> with, you know, an, an analysis of what something was worth to the two decimal points, you know, he would show that it's more that they have a sense of humor than, you know, analytic rigor. And and I think it's the same sort of thing that we want to get it roughly right. And so for us, it's how much money accomplishes what in what period of time. And we're looking at the financing risk. Who's going to care about this and what price will they pay? And will we be adequately compensated for the risk that we took? So if we, what what, what you have seen is because of the flood of money, a series A in my world of venture used to be a two to $5 million round at a 10 to $15 million post money valuation where you're buying about a third of the business and uh, 25 to 30% of the business. Today, Series A's are like $40 million, you know, and, and, yeah. and you're, you're doing a $20 million round and maybe you're still buying, you know, 20, 30%. But the, the inflation in valuations is high because the abundance of capital. And I think when the abundance of capital abates and it becomes more scarce, valuations will go back down. But in the meantime, we're looking at, okay, well, you know, who's going to fund the next round? And there's an abundance of growth capital. And so whether it's, you know, um, Andreessen or General Catalyst in my world, or it's Tiger Kotu D1 Viking Center. There are high quality, high signal people who are not dummies, right? I mean, they know how to value businesses. They know how to short stocks. Um, but there's something that they see about what is the scarce thing, which, and the focus today, going back to narratives, is not profits, it's growth. 
eventually that narrative will change and people will stop valuing the G part of the equation because rates will rise and they will care once again about profitability. We saw this 20 years ago, right? We went from, you know, mm-hmm. eyeballs to right. path to profitability and we will see a similar zeitgeist change. It'll probably start without performance of value, uh, you know, overgrowth. And then people will start looking at metrics that matter. And then there will be more discrimination, but people could actually understand and analyze a business, true business analysts versus, you know, like the arcs and the Baileys and others that are just, you know, basically speculating on growth stories. But when that happens, you know, I've been wrong for the past two, three years thinking that it was imminent. Yeah. Uh, Josh, how has VC behavior changed? Because obviously it is an arms race of sorts. You, you, you'd like to find the right companies and, and the, the guys looking for capital are not just going to be coming to you. They're going to be looking for it elsewhere. But presumably all the things you've just described have changed the behavior of of VC competitors of yours. So how do you how do you maintain your discipline when you're up against people who will pay stupid multiples for things just because of all the things you just pointed out? Well, for, for us, it's it's where we think the cash on cash return is going to be for a particular company. And so, you know, we've actually invested in things where we thought, you know, it, it felt crazy at an 800 million or billion dollar valuation for a company that was maybe doing 10 or 20 million dollars of revenue. But we felt imminent that they were so singular in what they were doing that the next round was going to be at four or five billion dollars. And obviously the interim rounds are nice for markups, but they're not relevant for exit expectations. But if you truly believe that this can be a company that exits, you know, at $10 billion plus, then, you know, we're okay paying a billion because you're still underwriting for a 10x return in five years. Um, so it, it's for us much more about what do we think to your point, the end game is on an exit basis. And, you know, there's interesting phenomenon that are happening now I can talk about in sort of the M&A market that I think is going to probably be the next speculative fervor and why um, in, in big companies. But I'd say overall, the behavior in venture has become less disciplined. There's an abundance of capital. There's return chasing from LPs. And so when you just look at the total number of venture firms today versus 10 years ago, you look at the total amount of LP endowment allocation to the asset class PE and VC versus 10 years ago. I think it probably favored private equity in 05, 06, 07. You had a little bit of bust, a resurgence, KKR, Carlisle, Apollo, TPG at all, you know, raising, you know, $10 billion plus funds being an enormous sponge for capital. Rates went down, you know, there's a lot of skepticism about some of these uh, buyouts and trading things, you know, from one PE firm to another, you know, within the LP's portfolio. And then a bunch of narrative stories in venture took off and you heard about, you know, whether it was NASPERS or other just making enormous monstrous returns and people basically saying, I wanted to, to fund that. And then you also had a narrative which, um, again, has been roughly right, but I, I would say induced uh, smart money to become a little bit less smart, uh, which was uh, something that Mark Andreessen said, which was like, look, there's you know, five or 10 companies that matter in a given year. And if you fund those companies, it really doesn't matter you know, if you paid $2 billion or $4 billion or $8 billion for LinkedIn. Right. It didn't really matter. You, know, you might have thought that you were a fool investing in Facebook at 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 or 25 or 50. You know, none of those prices mattered compared to where it is now at, you know, half a trillion plus value market cap. So his argument was, you just need to be in those companies and um, price be damned. And so I think that created a lot of um, permission to be less disciplined for investors. We've missed a lot of companies by being disciplined. And, you know, it's an error of commission, making an investment, getting potentially bad return and making an error of omission where you're like, yeah, I just feel like the price is too high. And then it goes off and, you know, becomes an enormous success. And you say process versus outcome. Did we make the wrong decision? Most of the time, you know, even if it's, um, you know, self-soothing our wounds of missing something, we feel like it was the right process. Uh, but we've definitely missed some, some great returns by being a little bit too cautious. So you touched a second ago on why you thought M&A was going to pick up. Is that because the, the PE guys are uh, 
you know, taking down lots of money and that's what happens? Okay. Or is, there's a, is there another reason? There, there is another reason, although definitely the amount of cash that's on the sidelines, I think is still very significant. And then, you know, should you see rotation out of fixed income into equities, I think it's, you know, going to exacerbate that. But, you know, there's two pieces of this. One is the demand for growth. And so I think you're going to see companies that um, need growth and they're not going to be able to develop it organically. And so they're going to have to buy growth and they may do so unprofitably. The second actually has to do with the SPAC market. And what's interesting about the SPAC market is, you know, some of these companies, you know, I've, I've distinguished the SPAC market broadly between what I call SPACs and traps. And I, I joke that, um, you know, sort of related to an old sci-fi uh, eponymous law from Theodore Sturgeon. Sturgeon's law that said that 90% of all sci-fi is crap. I think 90% of everything's crap. 90% of people crap, 90% of music crap, 90% of Netflix shows crap, 90% of SPACs are crap. The way that that shakes out is that 10% will be legitimate great businesses, great sponsors in them. You know, they de-SPAC well. They've got a good shareholder base, which they basically pre-selected, high-quality signal, good management, you know, top market share, and a ton of cash on the balance sheet that they're going to be able to do transformative acquisitions. If they are awarded very high multiples between the stock currency and the cash, and they do some acquisitions of smaller companies in their space, what I think will happen is some of the big companies that normally might look at a target and say, oh, yeah, you know, we're trading it 10 times, like, you know, sure, we'll pay eight times. It'll be a creative, you know, on downstroke, we'll do that deal. All of a sudden, a competitor is trading at 35 times and they're paying 15. Well, the company that's trading at 10 is like, well, we, we, we can't do that deal. I mean, the board won't approve it, you know? And so what happens is they start to lose a bunch of deals. And I think that that will loosen or lax in the discipline that they have. And it will lead to um, boardrooms and CFOs and CEOs being like, look, there's uh, existential risk if we don't buy this and a bunch of bad deals will get done. Go back again a generation, late 90s, you know, peaked at January 6, 2000 or thereabout with the AOL Time Warner deal. Time Warner, yeah, exactly. And, and so there will be a similar capstone deal like that where a high-flying, narrative-driven, high-multiple company buys a declining, cash-flowing, but, you know, secularly less sexy company, and it will sort of ring the bell. Um, you know, Mike and I, you know, a mutual friend, Mike Green and I have talked about, you know, could that be Tesla with an OEM? And there's a variety of reasons I think they're unlikely to do that, but um, it, it, it'll happen. But I, but I think that the next wave of this market frenzy will be an M&A boom that sort of, you know, ends up burning itself out. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You, 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 you mentioned back there, pension funds coming into, into private equity in, in the VC world, obviously two wholly incompatible bedfellows, one would think, from the outside and certainly using traditional, um, looking at it through traditional eyes. How have the pension funds affected what you do as they've as they've kind of gone down that reach for yield? Well, I, I think, you know, look, this is all starting on the seven and a half to seven percent premise, you know, yeah, rate exactly. That, so people are going out on the risk curve and all that I think is very intentional, you know, for policymakers. But um, you know, I, I actually think that the people that have been overweight private equity and venture heretofore have actually probably outperformed over the past 10 years. And so, you know, the question now is do they look at valuations and say, okay, we should pair back and look at, you know, distressed or short sellers or other things, you know, for what the next market, market cycle might be, or do we double down, you know, and then potentially yeah. having a 2000, 2003 like phenomenon in venture where, you know, everything got sort of hollowed out uh, before the distressed guys came in in 03 or so and picked up the pieces and, you know, made a boatload. So um, uh, the, the problem I would say is more pension money in, more capital abundance, lower future returns, Capital comes out, scarcer amount of capital, you know, abundant future returns. We're in a position which I feel very grateful for, and I don't take for granted, but we now get to choose, you know, who our LPs are. And we have far fewer pension funds and far more endowments and foundations and charitable uh, orgs and hospitals and people yeah. that 
when we make the money, we feel good that we know what, you know, that money's going back towards. Not that I wouldn't feel good about helping a pensioner, you know, meet their obligations, but, um, so, so then that's another question about like, who are the pensions getting access to? And then given the size of some of the investments that they have to make relative to the relative small size of venture funds, you know, there's probably an adverse selection at play. But has their process altered your process? Cause you know, I've, I've, been out fundraising before and I've I've sat in front of pension funds and it was a wholly different process than raising money from family offices from you know high net worths from any other kind of fund the pension process was so much more convoluted so much more rigid and it feels as though if they are going to come and, and and try and play in your world through necessity I, I, I I'm just making the assumption from what I've seen but it seems like their approach would be very difficult for them to apply that to you. And it feels like the, the way the VC world works might be troublesome for them to get past their trustees or do they have to just somehow change their process? No, I, I, I've seen a lot of the players and if they're not doing it direct themselves, you know, they're going through the Cambridges and Monticello's and others, you know, mm-hmm. big consultants. Um, and then some of them have actually stood up their own direct investing program. And, uh, you know, they've seen an opportunity to invest alongside their GPs in some cases in size. And some of that has really paid off. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't really see a, and, and again, when you look at the, per, the total percentage of, you know, the pension plan that's being invested, it's just, it's sort of a, you know, a drop in the hat in comparison. I mean, the venture asset class in, in whole, right, is just much smaller than private equity and certainly in public markets. Just the, the other thing that um, I've seen you comment on an awful lot uh, has been Bitcoin. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's touted as a potential end game by many, and, and Fleck and I are yet to get around to doing it, but we will. Uh, and talk about this with with some proper proponents of Bitcoin. But uh, but I'm curious as to your thoughts on it, simply because I know how thoughtful you are. Uh, I know you're not someone that that shoots from the hip. There's a great deal of intellectual capacity behind your thinking. So I'm I'm curious to get your thoughts on on Bitcoin in particular and cryptocurrency in general, blockchain in general, as a potential endgame of sorts. Let me throw another sub question in with that. Instead of saving it, maybe you can factor it into your uh, answer. Um, also, in that, there was so much uh, um, eagerness about the potential of blockchain technology when the cryptos burst on the scene. That was the that was the whole rationale. And now, all, all I ever see is our discussions about the price of the cryptocurrency itself, and never I don't see I see so little discussion of the blockchain and um, is this the calm before the storm or is there a reason for that? Or if you could factor that into your answer, I'd really appreciate it. So structurally, I think that the blockchain in whatever form premise, let's say on Bitcoin, is here to stay in the same way that the you know, double accounting, uh, double ledger uh, you know, accounting is. Um, I think that there's an accountability. I mean, there's, there's virtues of just the, of the virtues of the blockchain. And so it's not like I look at this and say, oh, this is a fraud. Like there's no, you know, I, I think it's real. And there's mathematical empiricism of like why a system that has a distributed ledger makes sense in the same way that, you know, distributed uh, file transmission uh, or, um, uh, you know, distributed packets uh, make sense for, you know, transmission media. And so uh, I, I have no qualms with, with, blockchain. Uh, I own Bitcoin. I own Ethereum. Uh, and I do that in part because I want to be able to not be labeled, uh, you know, a no coiner or some old fuddy duddy that is like against us. Like I own it. I stand to benefit from its appreciation. 
And I feel like that gives me the entitlement to be more intellectually honest. There are, you know, extremes. There's one extreme, which is like, this is a meme. Let's pump and dump it. Right. It's actually not even let's dump it, but let's pump it. And it's an us versus them tribal mentality. And that's the issue that I typically poke and prod and provoke online. You know, there was a brilliant talk, and I, I truly mean brilliant. It's it's arguably sinister, but it's brilliant um, by uh, an early crypto proponent that talked about how to meme Bitcoin to the moon. I yeah. saw this, Michael Gold Bitstein. Michael Bitstein, I think. Well, well Bitstein, I think is the nickname, but I think it's Gold Goldstein. But, um, but yeah. it's brilliant. I mean, it takes. I'm it, sorry, it was yeah. But but no, but you're right. But but it takes you know principles of like Cialdini influence. It takes. Um, you know, uh, like Machiavelli, like, you know, Sun Tzu, Art of War. I mean, it's, it's actually brilliant in like how you wage information operations, how you wage information war against anybody that like, you know, with us or against us, us versus that mentality, um, you know, when you actually engage with somebody and, and you see this, it is very clear. It is just, you know, it's almost like, again, political factions formed, you know, like, you know, Trump versus Biden people or whatever, like, there are memes and those memes work, you know, the yeah. people with laser eyes, right. The us versus them, um, you know, have fun being poor, you know, Bitcoin to the moon. Um, and, and all of these things are, are literally just the equivalent of, you know, picking a sports team and just rooting incessantly for, you know, Yankees, Red Sox, whatever. And just, you know, it, it's, it's gang, it's gang warfare. And, um, and so far they have all been rewarded and you have people that sort of went along with it because it was like part prank and part like, you know, a little bit um, anarchistic. And then some actually started reading and saw like some of the libertarian virtues of it and the sovereign individual. And and some started to form an identity around it and a community around it. And then when that identity and community was complemented with the ability for legitimate personal financial wealth, where somebody that might have put a thousand or 10,000 in suddenly had millions of dollars and were like, wait a second, I can literally opt out of the system and I don't have to play this game and I can, you know, just so, so you have that whole cohort of people, and some of them, I don't know what percentage, are utterly insufferable because they're not intellectually honest. And the main query that I used to have for people who would say, like, bit to the moon is, like, at what, at what price is Bitcoin overvalued? At what price are you a seller? Like, would you not just, you know, I mean, things clearly have value, therefore they have to be overvalued or undervalued at some point. At what point are you not taking every incremental dollar that you might be earning from a job or something else? and converting that into Bitcoin, and at what point are you selling? And I could never really get an answer. Obviously, most people, they would dance around it, but what they were really saying is, whatever's more than what I paid for it. Um, but the best answer I actually got was, if you accept it as a store of value under one construct, and a sufficient number of people believe that it's a store of value, particularly generationally, if gold is roughly $11, $11.5 trillion of value, and Bitcoin, now, I don't know, one and a quarter, one, $1 trillion thereabout, all crypto and combo, you know, close to two or something. If you reach parity where, you know, the old gold bugs, um, you know, basically continue to hold, but like the new generation was like, no, our gold is, you know, Bitcoin. That's the intersubjective belief that's not dollar-based that we believe, you know, to, is the best hedge against fiat currency. Then you could see it reaching parity at five trillion each, you know, as a sort of thought in the marketplace. And so, I don't know, Bitcoin 5X from here, 250 you know, dollar two hundred fifty thousand dollars per coin, like that would be a rational thing if you believe that an equal number of dollars are going to be in gold and, and Bitcoin. Um, but um, so so anyway, so, so 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 those are like the maximalists and the insufferables um, who who really typically respond with things like, 
you know, do the work or Bitcoin fixes this. Yeah, right. And, and there's nothing that Bitcoin doesn't fix, you know. Um, and so and, and, and the most frustrating one to me, because I am like, I don't want to say bleeding heart, but I'm very like left centrist in my civic social justice rights, particularly where I grew up, Coney Island education. And the idea that Bitcoin reduces inequality is just maddening. I mean, it is right now like the concentration of crypto holdings and the wealth of those holdings in a concentrated few is the epitome of inequality. I mean, it's far worse than any other asset class. And so I just, I just find that a, the equivalent of what we started this conversation with is sort of luring invective of like, you know, invoking inequality is just, it's, it's, it's wrong. It's a lie. So, um, but, but I think it's, it's, you know, anybody that would have criticized Bitcoin's persistence. And again, just in the intersubjective belief, just like religion or just like, you know, a, a character that we choose to believe in, you know, in a fictional construct or um, it's here. It's actually instantiated in Silicon uh, and through our networks. And so it's, it's not going to go away. Um, it's not immune from, you know, regulatory taxation, you know, sovereign uh, cancellation decree control. And so like, that's a little bit of a libertarian fantasy. It's almost like the, um, anyway, uh, so, so, you know, but, but the other piece and Bill raised this about, you know, what's blockchain good for, you know, like, have you seen anything useful come from it? I think that broadly, almost like the internet in the early days, you know, there was just a lot of stupid stuff on the internet first. And then like, you know, people chatting and like, you know, our natural reactions, like, what is it, what do you need this for? Right. And nobody really foresaw video conferencing like this or Amazon or like all. The, and so I think we're in an experimentation phase where again, even worse than Sturgeon's law, 99.99% of everything done is going to be utter BS. But like 0.0001% in hindsight will seem obvious and be like, of course, like this was a logical thing here. You had a group of rational people that saw there was a problem. The blockchain ended up being a better solution. You know, almost everything that we've ever been pitched on blockchain for the most part, my usual answer is like, why is that not done better in Excel or right. Google Sheets? You know, I mean, you're basically talking about a spreadsheet, right? But there will be some things where definitively uh, it will be superior and it will get adopted or it will be perceived to be superior and will get adopted. And then we'll look back and be like, okay, yeah, it was obvious all along. And is, is that the reason for your Ethereum bet? Or is that, again, just, just to own some? So you well, can call it Ethereum appears to have more utility in terms of yeah. apps and DeFi. And, but for me, it's just really, it's, um, it's, it's, uh, you know, speculation is permission to criticize. So uh, yeah. I, I felt like I, you know, I, I had to own some so that anybody, you know, I'd be like, well, I actually, in fact, I probably own more, you know, than, than most of the people that are right. opponents. And so I feel like that gives me some intellectual entitlement to, to crap on it. Have fun getting rich, Josh. Right. As we're talking about Bitcoin, one of the things it has been touted as, and this brings us back to this end game theory that Bill and I have been investigating, is an alternative to the dollar. and a potential outlet for either other countries to work around the dollar or um, for the US to adopt Bitcoin and to screw other people. There are so many cross currents in that. And, and that will lead us into another place where I want to go, which is the US and China relationship, which which I heard you and, and T2 talk about in another podcast recently. So with the current monetary system as a backdrop, cryptocurrencies place in that, do you see it as a potential outlet for that, or as a potential role in the end game? Or is that end game going to play out in a wholly different fashion, do you think? No, if we look forward, you know, 50 years and you look, you know, from Bretton Woods 
gold standard, 1971, post Bretton Woods, you know, China depegging. I mean, you, you see a whole bunch of like demarcations along the line, and you can say that the, you know, sort of invention and adoption of crypto and Bitcoin specifically, you know, ushered in the belief system against the backdrop of very rational people like Jim Grant or, you know, you guys that rail against, you know, the way that things have, have, have historically uh, been over the past, you know, particularly 20 years in the, the distortion of capital markets and the price signals is set by a handful of people, you know, in an esteemed institution who we, you know, um, so, so there is merit in people that lament the odd currency. There is the mere fact that we are talking about could Bitcoin and some kind of the dollar or US dollar, you know, hegemony. Um, like to the Bitcoin proponent's point, like it's sort of working, right? The fact that like, this is like went from like uh, almost Gandhi-esque, like, you know, joke to suddenly being, you know, uh, taken seriously, I think is, is, is existence proof itself that something is underway. Well, massive price appreciation will distort the narrative though, too. For sure. And, and look, you know, it, it could still fall, you know, 90%. And I think that would, you know, still be true, right? For people that, that, that you know, could go down to $5,000 and, and, and there's still going to be a portion of people that are like, well, look at it compared to what it was, you know, 10 years ago at a hundred bucks. Yeah, for sure. But Bitcoin itself does not have an army and geopolitics still matter. And um, I also like, you know, getting into Twitter fights and debates with, you know, people that talk about how Bitcoin is going to bring peace because unfortunately, as long as we are humans, you know, we have conflicts and competing interests and many of those are zero sum, whether they were land or ideas. And it would be great if we all got along as Rodney King once said, but we don't. And so um, uh, one of the means that the U S projects its power is through um, sanctions and, and uh, a dollar is the reserve currency of the world. And, um, and there are a lot of Bitcoin proponents who might also find insufferable uh, because people have said, well, this is the most patriotic thing uh, in the way that I guess they also feel like widespread gun ownership would be like the most patriotic thing uh, as an embodiment of the Second Amendment. But uh, it's not. It, it, it ultimately undermines our currency. Um, you could say, well, we've been undermining our currency, you know, f- for 100 years and it's, you know, devalued and all that. That's true. And so it's, it's set up for a volatile debate of belief, which is arguably what a currency is premised on in the first place. You know, I know our bills say in God we trust, but, you know, for the atheists amongst us, like it's, you know, in central banks that we trust and, um, and the decisions that they make. So uh, the one certainty I feel here, you know, as cliche as it is, is the uncertainty and the volatility. Um, but there definitely are interests from peer competitors to see the U.S. dollar and our ability to impose sanctions massively undermined. So is is that that that, um, that conflict and and this kind of rising of a of another monetary system to supplant the dollar? There's all kinds of dots you can join between China and the Russians and the Saudis and the Turks, and it's all centered around oil and it's all centered around finding some way to not accept the U.S. dollar for in payment for oil. Do you buy that narrative? And if so, what is the danger here of a miscalculation from somebody either? either the rising powers in taking on the U.S. too soon or the U.S. in either squashing it too hard or waiting too long? Um, short answer is I don't know. Russia itself, I think, is more of a prankster and a, a rogue and trickster. Um, you know, China is more serious, uh, not because, you know, I'm anti-Sino and, you know, some of the most brilliant people in our companies, you know, come from China. It's incredible work ethic, incredible academic pursuit. Um, and, and when you look at a system, in contrast to ours, you know, competing on the global stage of ideas, you can look at things that get done in China and things that don't get done in a more disorganized democracy. 
And you can say, my God, look at how they're able to do X, right? Build bridges, build buildings, build towns, whatever. And then, of course, you need the sort of social justice piece of this. And you say, well, you know, uh, look at the Uyghur com- concentration camps. And, you know, we say never again. And it's happening there. And, and so uh, China, to me, is the greatest threat to just the current balance of power. It, um, uh, it was something that I think has been very low. It, it, it's the ultimate slogan and the ultimate end game. Yeah. But, you know, between population, economic ties and influence, influence throughout the world. Um, I mean, we are, we are sort of, we're, we're playing catch up and we are clamoring to create new alliances. Um, Russia will try to create provocations and disrupt these things to create instability from those happening. But um, the, the Asia Pacific and the Indo-Pacific broadly are, are probably the most strategic area that, that matters. That's going to shape everything from trade to human rights to adoption of technology and technological systems. You see this already with 5G AI. You're going to see it in space very seriously next. Um, the capabilities that China already has and the launch frequency landing on the dark side of the moon, you know, race now for a lunar base. I mean, some of this is like straight out of sci-fi, but it's all happening and it's very real. I think the best thing to prevent future confrontation, frankly, is imagining those future confrontations. As you know, I like to say that failure comes from a failure to imagine failure. And you've heard me talk about this in the past, but I grew up in the 1980s where you had a clear and present danger. You had, you know, Russian villains in movies, but a lot of that allowed people to imagine worst case scenarios so as to prevent them. And I think that it would actually benefit to see U.S.-China rivalry in movies. I think it would probably actually be a domestic benefit to realign us against the potential common third enemy, Um, not in being like jingoistic and like, you know, super patriotic or racist or anything like that, but just, you know, so as to imagine conflict with a peer competitor so as to prevent it. And um, you got to go through those scenarios just like like people warging. Military to military relations are going to be critical. And, you know, those have broken down. I posted something the other day <coughs> where uh, Joe Dunford, uh, former chief, yeah. uh, joint chief of staff, chairman of joint chief of staff, and a U.S. Marine was um, commenting that, you know, things were looking pretty good in 2017. And then one of the key guys ended up getting arrested. And, and uh, you know, he was able to talk to a general later on. And the general was pretty overt. Like, we don't want to legitimize, you know, these military to military conversations. So, they're on the move. They're on the move in an ascendant, aggressive, and very subtle, calculated way. And we've had between four and 14 years of domestic chaos. Um, and so that has distracted a lot of people and certainly, uh, you know, domestic desire to, you know, be at war in any kind of way. So, Well, do you think that given how sort of fractured America is at the moment, probably the most fractured I've seen it in my lifetime, would you think that the Chinese might look at this as a moment of, of opportunity? Should they be interested in doing something from a military standpoint, like vis-a-vis Hong Kong or Taiwan? Or do you think that whatever their plan and their timeline is, it's not going to be altered by us being perceived as weak? Do you have a view on that? No, I, I think I think uh, weakness or perception of weakness is opportunity. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, you, you said Hong Kong or Taiwan. They already did Hong Kong. You know, right, and, right, and, yeah, right. And, and we blink. So, you know, right. 20 years ago, if, you know, that was raised, you know, and it was relatively, I mean, there was, you know, violence in the streets and uh, all of that was broadcast and none of it mattered, right? And so, right. I, I was surprised at that, but anyway. Uh, but, you know, we didn't do anything. Uh, but that was sort of their Crimea in a way, right? And so if, if Putin has 
a long game, you know, and it is a chess game, you know, you're playing risk, you're playing geopolitics on a board. I do believe that that's the way some of these leaders say, like, he doesn't need to do it this quarter. He doesn't, you know, but Ukraine was a setup, you know, basically from the Southwest to be able to encroach, you know, on Ukraine. And if you can create some volatility on the Eastern border of Ukraine and create more and more pressure. And so I, I think for China, it's the same thing. Hong Kong was first, you know, Taiwan. And I think Mike has made this point. Mike Green has made this point. You don't need to attack Taiwan. Like our perception is, you know, you're going to have like fighter jets fly in or something like you just need to put a bunch of people on domestic flights, you know, from Beijing to Taiwan. And you can have, you know, hundreds coming every week and a few thousand people. And it's 12 miles to the, to the city center. And, um, you know, you can take the city domestically. Um, so, you know, China's main interest is being able to project power, uh, into the Pacific and you have a natural barrier there. Um, and so does weakness in invite, you know, further aggression? Yes. I think what you saw in the past few weeks with Ukraine, as things were widely reported, including one of our companies that takes satellite imagery, uh, having launched these small sats um, of what was happening in the Ukrainian border, you know, we sent material and clear messages, and in that case, Putin backed down. But, you know, I, there was a prodding from that Russian bear to decide, like, you know, is this a move that we're going to make? And if we were to have gotten distracted and something were to have occurred there, it definitely would have increased the probability that China would have done something because now you're distracted on multiple fronts. And obviously the U.S. interest is to be able to project power in multiple theaters at the same time. But, um, you know, you're, you're starting to see some fiction that imagines this. Um, Elliot Ackerman, Jim uh, Stavridis, Admiral, who's former Allied Commander of NATO, I just did a thing with them uh, in their book, 2034, Imagining the Next World War. And it starts with a U.S. Navy ship that thinks it's coming to a... Uh, 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 fishing boat and the fishing boat is actually equipped with things that can completely disable all the electronics and, you know, basically goes uh, on information warfare attack and then quickly disables, you know, U.S. naval ability to react to that. Uh, and then you've got Ghost Fleet um, by uh, August Cole and Peter Singer. Uh, so, so there's books that are starting to imagine this and I'd like to see those made into movies so that, you know, people can start thinking about this um, to prevent it. But I also think that having a common third enemy, and if you look back through U.S. history, um, Mexican-American War, World War I, World War II, Korean War didn't count, Vietnam didn't count, it created a lot of internal strife, ISIS and Al-Qaeda, you know, the war on terror didn't count. You need a large mass foreign enemy with an ideology that feels threatening. And so, you know, that could have been Nazi Germany, that could have been, you know, Russia, communism. Uh, I think authoritarian China could potentially be it, particularly in how suppressive it is of dissidents. And um, in each of those moments when we were at war with a large power, and it's not kinetic war, cold war, the country came together. And so the downshot of that is that some of the great domestic civil liberty advances that we see actually happen in the interstitial periods between war, you know, civil rights movement, um, women's rights, uh, prohibition, uh, child labor laws. A lot of those things happen when we turn our attention away from the common third enemy and back on ourselves and start fighting. And then typically out of the internal fighting bubbles up human progress, even in its ugliness. But uh, I, I think we're due for, you know, basically a sort of re-nationalization, refocusing, uh, almost a healing domestically. Josh, what, what role, if, if any, do you think the new Chinese DCEP, the, D the Digital Currency Electronic Payment System, plays in this? Because it's been covered, but surprisingly little, I think, given the importance I, I think it may have. What's your take on that, and what do you think it, is the end game for that? 
well, I think like all technology, one would have been very wrong to estimate that its use was for what it is mostly in the U.S., democratization and access. Right. Um, you know, uh, face recognition we see as a great convenience. Of course, face recognition as employed by China is for total surveillance. Um, you know, social media uh, we saw as a way to, you know, connect with friends and find affinity groups and speak to grandma. Uh, you know, foreigners help to influence uh, the polarization that social media caused and we bemoan it and we blame Facebook, but it's actually interesting, by the way, um, somebody was recounting that during the Hong Kong protests, the people in Hong Kong that worked for Facebook were very against China, uh, encroachment. Uh, most of the, and they were vastly outnumbered by, um, Chinese employees who worked at Facebook domestically in the U S and elsewhere who were basically like, you know, this is, this isn't our business, you know, it's their sovereignty. And, and so, so that's actually quite interesting thinking about the sovereign allegiances, even within companies, which is not something that's naturally nefarious. It's almost natural, but it's quite interesting. Um, but all the technologies that you thought would give more democracy, more access, you know, more shining spotlight on problems, sunshine heals all, you know, has actually been, um, you know, used in an authoritarian way. And so currency is the ultimate form of control. I mean, you know, widely reported as, some of the social credit mechanisms in place so that, you know, obviously if you were to speak ill of the party in China, if you, you know, you lose credits, like a black mirror episode, you can't yeah. get, you know, tickets uh, to shows, you can't get on the train. You can't, I mean, you, you quite literally get demerits and um, you have to earn them back by pledging fealty and loyalty and you get rewarded and that's all tracked. So nobody wants digital currency more than she and the CCP. And it would give total surveillance over who is paying whom, what they're spending, how they're spending, where their money's going, where their attention's going. Um, it could be used against people, you know, for, you know, buying the wrong things. You could galvanize people. So it's, it's another mechanism of control, unfortunately, I think, rather than one of convenience. How far off do you think it is, Josh? I, I think it's already happening. I think they already tried yeah. it in uh, several cities over the past two or three years, and now they're rolling it out. I meant, yeah, I meant in terms of where, where they will have like a, in nearly a full scale push to, to get it. Oh, I, I, uh, to be- I, I think within a decade, you've got over 75% of, um, you know, Chinese transactions are non-cash and totally surveilled. And I think probably somewhere between one and 5% of global, uh, transactions, even including domestic U S are on. I remember being down in the seaport and, you know, normally you see like if you, you know, use Apple pay, you know, you see like the Visa card or the Apple Pay or, you know, whatever, and like the little um, uh, point of sale checkout things. And there was a, a WeChat and a, a WePay uh, symbol. And obviously that was presumably for tourists, but it just opened my eyes that I saw it in taxis too pre-pandemic, that there was a sort of just infiltration of what would otherwise be seen as a benign brand, you know, just the sort of, you know, Chinese version of Google or Facebook. Um, but I, I think... Um, I think the reach is going to be significant. But, but, you know, all those qualities that you that you lay out of digital currencies and how they might be used problematically for the citizens by the CCP, obviously, whilst most people are ready to believe that once these currencies pick up uh, adoption in the West, they won't be used for the same purposes, it's hard to <laughs> imagine how how, given the fact that they can be used for all those things, that they won't be because it feels as though necessity will dictate that you do need to start 
monitoring transactions and making sure money's going where it needs to go and not being hoarded where it needs to needs to be hoarded and you know interest rates are going to be negative and money's going to be taken I, am i wrong in thinking that or does this one idea of state controlled digital currencies ultimately end up the same in every jurisdiction uh, meaning would china have insight here or would the us well no i mean would, we think that the chinese will use it to control and surveil oh but that wouldn't happen in the uk or the us but it seems to me that those those powers are going to be necessary yeah well I, you know I, I, you know the uk is i think one of the most surveilled in terms of like you know just even thinking yeah, about cameras, cameras for sure places um you know the idea of the orwellian big brother you know i, I think the bigger thing honestly is again democratization of technology you know like that old pogo cartoon you know we've met the enemy and he's ourselves like we we watch each other and so i think there's more reporting of like you know the average citizen on another citizen whether they're capturing a crime or something like that or, or they're you know capturing and embarrassing somebody it's increasingly just reported by people than it is you know surveilled by the state um and and frankly the people in the state you know the technology is not that great i mean you know you always have this vision that you think it's like this you know, HBO or CBS, you know, thriller of like this, you know, right. all-encompassing, you know, Skynet, but uh, the incompetence of, you know, people in the, you, you would be right to say, well, we're more concerned about the concentration of our data inside of the big tech companies and then your monopolies that they face. But even that I feel is overblown in that every time that there's been a tech monopoly, you know, the DOJ sort of knocks on somebody's door and there's, you know, concerns about civil liberties. They're almost always disrupted, not by the DOJ, but by some unknown competitor that came about, you know, Microsoft in, you know, 2000 or thereabout, 99, 2000. Um, you know, they were singularly focused on like this operating system, which within 10 years, you know, has become more or less, less relevant and the rise of Google and Facebook were never foreseen. And, you know, Google was then concerned, you know, the main concern and then Facebook came and then Facebook's the main concern. And notably, by the way, every time that there's concern there, you usually have startups that are being formed by people that are leaving at that particular time. So, you know, a lot of people that are coming out of Microsoft in 2000, a lot of people that were coming out of Google in 2005, people that are coming out of Facebook in 2010, people that are coming out of Palantir now. And so usually it's an interesting fountain of new entrepreneurial talent, but no, I'm not particularly worried. And, and I also tend to be a little bit on the camp that privacy itself is dead. I mean, maybe in your bathroom, maybe in your bedroom, you know, you still get it. Um, and interestingly, even when it comes to like bank accounts, you know, the very rich want everybody to know exactly how much money they have. Um, and the very poor almost broadcast like you know they'll say like i'm dead ass broke right and like they almost show how little money they have it's usually the middle class that wants to lie you know somebody that's making you know x wants to be seen as making two x or three x right right so um i i, I just think privacy is dead you know tools will ever evolve um i do think the trend in a democracy is more towards the democratization of the access to these tools and I don't mind being watched as long as you can sort of watch the watchers. That's the, you know, principal asymmetry. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you see that right now with police, right? I mean, you have historic capture of police, uh, bad behavior. And, you know, there's a lot of good behavior that you get to, you know, see these heartfelt stories of, you know, cops stopping and playing basketball with kids, you know, just as you see, you know, 10 examples of, uh, horrific, uh, brutality and, and killing of, you know, innocent people. And so, uh, you know, that great handheld device of democracy, I, I think, still has a lot of virtue. Yeah, Josh, we, we've talked about tech and, we, and we've talked about conflict and potential warfare. And I'd love to kind of finish by, by wrapping the two together. I, I wrote a piece at the beginning of this year based around the Nagorno-Karabakh 
conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia and how the, the, the advent of cheap drones from Israel and Turkey had completely upended an existing power dynamic and, in my view, showed that warfare is likely changed forever. So, so given your understanding of technology uh, uh, of this fear and your understanding through T2 of the military side of things, just run us through technology and warfare and, and how that is looking to change in the coming years. Um, well, in, in that particular instance, by the way, the, the drones are not the same as like what you see ISIS use in Syria, which are, you know, effectively uh, versions of DJIs with uh, explosives, you know, um, they're able to get under, you know, air superiority and, and attack people. Uh, these are larger loitering drones that effectively sort yeah. of stay there. They're probably, mm, you know, six to 15 foot in wingspan. Um, and then they can basically just very rapidly dive. And so, so they're not, you know, destroying one or two soldiers. They're able to, you know, blow up tanks and, and uh, vehicles and, um, and, and buildings. So uh, they're, they're basically, you know, loitering missiles, more or less. Um, yeah. and, and we have a company that, uh, Anderol, that is focused on developing technology to provide counter uh, drones uh, uh, to those drones and, and some kinetic systems that can blow those things up in the sky. Uh, that company was actually contacted uh, by um, by one of the parties because they were, were being uh, destroyed, and uh, right. there's there's uh, very strict regulations, as you can imagine, about what a U.S. company can or can't sell, and you know requires U.S. government approval. But, but they were told to stand down um, and not be involved in that. But um, it's it's uh, it's it's morally you know very complicated. Um, generally, you know uh, this is. Uh, getting involved in this as a technology investor and funding technologies that, you know, overtly will be involved in a kill chain is something that requires a lot of moral, you know, soul searching yeah. and discussion. Um, and do you feel that, you know, I have one partner who's made the case, look, we can twist ourselves in a pretzel to sort of justify anything. I've justified that being involved here, making sure that our men and women on the edge of the front lines, you know, are not disadvantaged in any way when you have peer competitors where there's complete military civil fusion and there's no question about whether technologies created by industry are going to be provided. There's lots of situations where I think since Eisenhower and this zeitgeist of the you know, military industrial complex, that this is um, something that I think needs to be renewed and changed uh, you know, to younger, faster, high-tech companies. I, I truly believe that in some cases, our own worst enemy is the sclerotic system, where the people that know to, how to work the game, you know, um, and you know, I imagine money for Lockheed, but you know, Lockheed and Raytheon and Boeing and all, uh, Northrop and Booz Allen, you know, um, and Bellway bandits that are able to get very large dollars and basically have an oligopoly, I think are doing a great disservice to the people who serve us. And so I think that there will be change there. It's going to take a long time. It'll probably take some generational change. But, um, you know, the nature of, of warfare is unfortunately a constant. It's been well documented by Stephen Pinker and others, how it's on decline directionally. But one of the permanents, I always say, is, um, you know, technologies can change and markets can change and Businesses can change and governments can change and who's in power can change, but human nature is relatively constant. And um, as we talked about earlier, you know, the constant of conflict and zero-sum nature of disagreements, um, the quest for alliances, the quest to you know, dominate, the quest for vengeance, the quest, you know, to aggrieve the um, wrong, to, um, you know, all, all these things are permanent. They're Shakespearean, you know, they're written in history, um, they're written in fiction, they're written in nonfiction, you know, the New York Times and FT and Journal every day. but uh, it's compounded by a desire for people in the quest for power to deceive others. Um, and most of warfare and technological evolution have gone sort of, you know, um, 
co-evolved in uh, the constant quest for deception and detection of that deception. And so, you know, submarines were invented to be able to uh, evade and uh, detection. And then sonar was invented to detect submarines. Um, subs that were loud needed a quiet power source. And so they ended up with nuclear power on the subs. Uh, and so you have small modular reactors in 104 of our Navy nuclear subs. Um, you know, lasers were intended to, um, uh, you know, serve as both a weapon and a detection mechanism. Uh, night vision goggles, you know, to be able to see and not be seen, uh, you know, in the, in the darkness, uh, cover of darkness. And so technology naturally evolves to provide somebody a capability to evade detection and to uh, detect somebody who's trying to evade detection. Uh, a lot of the signals processing and signals intelligence across every domain from space to air to land to sea, subsea. Um, and then what's interesting is a lot of you know, things come off of that, right? So all the investments in lasers started mostly defense-oriented, and from that we got CDs and DVDs and LASIK surgery, right? But that was never intended. Uh, same thing, radio, uh, you know, the internet, all these things were originally government and defense-funded, um, in, and semiconductors, of course, and ability to calculate trajectory of missiles and, uh, you know, projectiles. And, and so, so there is a great peace dividend of the serious and constant and permanent, you know, um, investment in technology for, you know, competitive advantage. And uh, that, I think, will never change. So, yeah, we, we at the moment are, are quite long two themes, which I think are going to be permanent. Um, I would love to see the Cold War with China, which is here and real, be a very peaceful one. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunities for collaboration and there's a, a brilliant, you know, group of people. And just by sheer number, I think there's enormous potential. And so I, I hope that we find, you know, diplomatic, but I think military and military to military um, engagement is, is, is likely, if not inevitable. Um, but, uh, you know, there's this, in, in this Cold War, this geopolitical domain of hard power and soft power on the hard power side. Uh, we have a lot of companies that are focused on everything from hardware and software, surveillance, um, and things that are involved in a kill chain. And then on the soft power side, I, I truly believe that there's going to be a race for scientific prestige. And if you go back to the 80s and you think about the Olympics and chess and um, science, I think we're going to see that again with, with China. Uh, you know, you just saw the first Chinese woman win an Oscar, uh, even though she was, you know, lamented and rejected by Beijing because of her criticism, you know, um, many years ago. Uh, you had the first Chinese Nobel laureate in 2UU, um, that was for Chinese medicine, but um, you're going to see China start to really win on the global stage in a way that people will look to the culture and the output of that culture as something that is um, is very interesting. And so I, I think that a lot of money is going to come from the U.S. government to NIST and NSF, National Science Foundation. I think you're going to see a growing demand for scientific instrumentation, particularly in the life sciences, new microscopes, cutting-edge software that allows you to do all kinds of analysis. Uh, and I think there'll be a, a global competition for prestige. So um, we're sort of long two of those themes within the sub-segment of, you know, sort of new ge geopolitical arms race, um, everything from space, launch capabilities, manufacturing in space, returning from space, surveillance, satellites, communication, um, defense itself, and then the sort of soft power push of, of prestige. One other, one other um, place before we wrap up, I saw a tweet that you put out. I think it was today. Maybe it was yesterday. I think it was today. Explain sex tech to us. This should be slightly less controversial. <laughs> I'm, I'm not quite sure what it is, um, but I'm, I'm curious to know more. You know, you've had a good conversation when the least controversial thing you're talking about is sex. I, I know, right? <laughs> you know, this was very simple. This um, obviously was sensationalized uh, yeah. with fruit pictures and, and uh, endless innuendos, although I, I conceive that I'm guilty of saying, you know, having cringed at all of the I'm vaxxed and waxed 
you know, uh, tweets that it was going to be a seminal summer. Uh, but yes, I did, I did notice that. The, the, the pun wasn't lost. Well played. <laughs> but thank you. But my, my <laughs> the horrible, cringy jokes and puns aside, people have been bottled up for a year, you know? I'm a happily married man. I've got three kids. I'm a you know, great role model for them. But everybody that I talk to is just like, you know, this is going to be 1960s summer of love kind of thing. Right. Right? Well, okay. If that's obvious, what's the next thing? You know, rise of STDs, right? People, just because they've been in a pandemic, uh, you know, you might not get the flu, you might not get COVID, but you might still have an STD. And once, you know, you're with somebody else, you're going to spread. So we happen to have some companies. We have a company, Everly Well, that is uh, focused on at-home kits for rapid testing, STDs. Right. Um, we've got a whole bunch of healthcare IT companies that are sort of the back end for people. Obviously, you know, a lot of people don't go to the doctor if you get an STD because you're embarrassed, but if you can do a telehealth visit and get a prescription, but you're going to see, you know, already data that syphilis is on the rise and syphilis. I mean, I thought we were, you know, in California. Right. Right. So, scurvy next. Yeah. No, so I, it was more like, uh, uh, I'm making sure I avoid any more bad puns here, but it was more <laughs> just a read that what was imminently likely, again, believing that human nature is imminently predictable is um, people are going to be very sexually active this summer and um, promiscuous, and it will lead to uh, an indifference, um, uh, probably a lot of unprotected sex, and that in turn will lead to STDs, and there will be demand for you know, um, uh, diagnosis and treatment. Fascinating. Fascinating stuff. Well, Josh, uh, it, listen, it's, it's always so much fun to listen to you talk, or listen to you, listen to you think out loud, which is, which is what it always is for me, an exercise in that. And, um, you know, I, I, Bill and I are just so thankful that you found the time to come and do this with us. I, I love that but, you, you guys are, are really helping to congeal thinking around, you know, what does an endgame look like? And uh, that's cross geopolitics and markets and human behavior. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm keen to see what it is. And, you know, if you believe in this idea of the infinite game, it'll be a constant series of endgames around all yeah. new topics forever. Yeah. yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, that, that's, that's the conclusion we've reached, but there's, it's still fascinating to see how many different potential uh, outcomes there are. But before, before we go, just um, let people know how they can follow you if they're not already. I'm sure most of them will be, but just for those poor souls who aren't privy to your wisdom, let them know how they can do that. Well, I think uh, probably Twitter is where I'm most active. So Wolf Josh, W-O-L-F-E-J-O-S-H at Twitter. And uh, yeah, happy to engage with anyone. Fantastic. Josh, it's always fun. And this was a particularly enjoyable. I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Great to see you. Again. Thanks a lot, Josh. Thanks, Bill. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah, that that was um, interesting to get out of sort of the financial element. So much of, of what we've discussed in the past is the financial element, and and sort of cross into the sort of the geopolitics and 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 the and the sort of the looming threat of China. I had never thought about that. You know, when we were all growing up, the Russians were the bad guys, and and we all got to see how bad things could yeah. get. And I hadn't thought about the all of those scare things being a prophylactic to try to stop it from happening. And, uh, and, and I think that was a really excellent point that he made that we kind of need to make China the bad guys so, so we can envision that and maybe sort of stop it from happening. It's so funny you say that, Bill, because I, I think two or three years ago, I started writing a, a, an edition of Things to Make at Home about, because I noticed when I was going to the movies that every single movie I saw when the production companies come up at the beginning, every single one of them had at that point a Chinese producer. It, it was amazing how many uh, big Chinese production houses were, you know, proper blockbuster movies. And I was looking at this and doing some research into it, and it and it really struck me that this had to be some kind of deliberate move into Hollywood. And then I heard Josh. I didn't end up writing the piece. Something else kind of took over and caught my eye, and I didn't end up writing the piece. But it always comes kind of bubbling away at the back of my mind. And then I hear Josh talking about this a little while ago. And 
you know, he, elab- he, he, he laid it out much better than I probably would have done had I written it, but talking about how it's very deliberate on the part of the Chinese producers to make sure there are no Chinese villains in movies. They don't want the Chinese being the bad guy. Like, you know, Ivan Drago mm-hmm. back at, in Rocky IV, right. right, was was the clear, Red Dawn and all these, these kind right, of movies. Right, 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 right. All the Clancy books. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, and, and it's really interesting, and it's a fascinating point that, that he touched on there as well, that, um, that, that I have noticed, and, and it, it's obviously a very deliberate ploy. And, of course, the, the, the woke environment that we live in is a huge help for anyone that wants to try and do something right because you can't you can't demonize anybody uh, but um that point that it is a healthy prophylactic to 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 imagine what uh you know malignant actors might do actually makes a world of sense to me i t- i totally agree like i said i hadn't thought of it from that standpoint before but um, um it makes a lot of sense well it's uh it's fascinating stuff and um and for us the end of another episode of the end game uh so all that remains i guess is to thank everybody for listening once again to remind you that uh if you're not following me on twitter you can do so quite easily at ttmygh or you can find me at at fleckcap and again josh wolf in case you can catch that uh it's at wolf josh that's wolf with an e josh all one word no underscores no nothing thanks very much for listening we'll be back soon Nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.